Test one, two, three, test one, two, three. <clears throat> you know what this market reminds me of? It's the inverse of Bitcoin. It's like everybody was waiting for a blow off top in Bitcoin. It never happened. And now everybody's waiting for capitulation in the markets. And the jury is out. Will it happen? Uh, you know, someone was mentioning yesterday on Real Vision, in their daily briefing there, that the VIX isn't going crazy. And I think it was Jared who was saying that, and that the VIX during March 2020 was at 80, and now it's at 33. It's like everybody is waiting for the crash. Almost everybody has cash on the sidelines, one would hope at this point. This has been telegraphed for a while. It's almost like the biggest, most obvious financial crisis in waiting in history that I remember, which makes you think, well, maybe there won't be such a capitulation that everybody is waiting for. Hello and welcome. My name is Adrian Pocabelli and welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. So, Interesting markets as ever. I mean, the bargains are starting to appear left and right. Again, I'm left wondering, like, maybe the bear cycle is not over, but maybe a relief rally is in store. That's what I'd guess. Now, interesting moves in the metals here. I mean, gold, I think it hit like 1848 yesterday. And the reason I mentioned that is because Gareth Soloway, the technical analyst who was on a few weeks ago, I recently watched him as well, and he was sort of saying that gold at 1820 to 1850 is in, in the buy zone. So I wonder if that triggered it for him. He said he was buying silver. Again, I mentioned this last show. A lot of the metals have taken a hit. I mean, copper is down at $4.19, and I looked at Cameco, which is the feature content of this show. And Cameco's stock, let me just get the latest. I mean, it's down pretty hard. I think we're down 30% in the last, I don't know, month? Let me just look. I mean, considering what a hot trade uranium is, yeah, you are down 31.37%. So I suppose, like the chart, wow, that's a breakdown and a half. And year-to-date, you're down 7%, so don't feel like you missed the train on uranium if you are a bull. And let me tell you, Tim Gitzel, CEO of Cameco, is a definite bull. It sounds like that company is ready. It's like years in the making. It has positioned itself for this moment. So the stock has come down since the 20th of April, and we're at the 10th of May here. So in the last 20 days... The stock has come down from 31.55 on the New York Stock Exchange down to $21.02. Very interesting. And this is the thing, like when we have these market sell-offs, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater, but that's the opportunity as well. Again, year to date, you are down 7.4% on Cameco if you thought you missed the trade. So, interesting. So, we're going to have Cameco's Q1 conference call with Tim Gitzel. It is very interesting. It is full of geopolitics. It is full of just energy, climate change, and the energy transition. It's a really interesting view on what is happening from the CEO of arguably, the, at least in the West, the most important uranium producer in the West. Arguably, I don't know what would compete with that in the West. I mean, we have Kamazaprom, if I'm pronouncing that right, in Kazakhstan. I think those are the two blue chips, so to speak. We were talking about Rohan Reddy about that, uh, I think not last time, but the time before. So what a great time to be looking at Cameco and what they're saying. And let me tell you, it really is a nice piece of the puzzle if you're following what's going on, which I assume everybody is on a certain level. Even if you just scroll Facebook all day, you are following what's happening here. Another Interesting thing, I mean, if we look at a lot of these charts here, again, BHP uh, continues to drop. BHP year-to-date up 1.8%, so let's just call that 2%. Rio Tinto year-to-date down 2.6%. Valet year-to-date up 7%, but they're so low. Again, PE of 3 <laughs> that maybe it doesn't matter. Glencore up 18%, Freeport down 14%. Again, everybody thought, oh, let's jump into copper. 
Not an easy trade. You're down 14% from year to date. Okay, Anglo-American up 6.5. Newmont up 13. Nutrien, you know, our agricultural, I believe, potash and everything else that they do, they're up 32% for the year. Southern Copper down 5%. Fortescue down 4%. Barrick up 17%. Finally, some good news for the Barrick stock. And we have a couple of stories on Barrick coming up. So it's going to be a really interesting, action-packed episode here. And, you know, a lot of these commodities, it's a very interesting time. I mean, people say inflection point is a bit of a cliche, so maybe I'll indirectly use it like I just did. But it's a moment where you wonder if this is a in the commodities, at least, if we're in a buy-the-dip moment. The stocks are, most technical people are pretty bearish say like Gareth Soloway, but with gold and silver, he seems to be quite bullish. Again, all of these things, like nickel looks like it's just coming back to its uptrend. I mean, copper, again, just like we were saying last week, continues to fall out of bed. Coal, on the other hand, is going up. You know, lithium plateauing, uranium just kind of seems to have found a temporary bottom there. It was at 65, now it's at 55. And wheat is just going kind of sideways, which is kind of scary because it's going sideways at a pretty high level, uh, maybe 50% higher than where we were, say, six months ago. So anyways, very interesting time in the news and the markets. As you all know, thank you for tuning in. And I was just thinking to myself, we were into resources over here before it was cool. And we all know it wasn't very cool. I think it's getting cooler. I think gold's about to get a little cooler after the cool off last year with Bitcoin, and now gold is getting a little bit cooler. I even find myself, one of my favorite sort of indicators is what am I listening to? And I'm finding myself a little more interested the last, say, two months in what the gold analysts are saying. So yeah, that's always a fun indicator too, the self-indicator. And we have also a story that kind of went under the radar a little bit about how SEC rejected the Sprott US fund. We're going to look at that too. We have a reporter at Mining in Daba. So we have a report there, Mark Bristow's speech. So tons going on. And before we continue, we also have the Global Mining Symposium, which is coming up May 25th and 26th. And you can register today. Just go to events.northernminer.com. And you can also become a sponsor on that same page. So if you want to promote your story, you're a miner or a supplier of mine-related goods, this is your opportunity to share your story to an audience that is interested. And also, we have Pierre Lassonde coming up on June 8th, the speaker series, also at events.northernminer.com. Just click on the register now button and you can get your gourmet lunch and hang out with Pierre Lassonde and friends at One King West Hotel in Toronto, Ontario. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn and YouTube, where we also post this podcast and Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Peter Richardson, who is with Manifest Climate for their second CEO Spotlight interview for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today for this week's CEO Spotlight, I am very pleased to welcome Peter Richardson, previously a lawyer for 15 years at an international law firm and is now with Manifest Climate. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And we had Manifest Climate on something like six to eight weeks ago. And I think it was Laura gave us a big picture view on what was happening. But refresh our listeners' memory. What is Manifest Climate and who is your service for? Great, thanks. And so you, you met with Laura Zizzo, co-founder and CEO of Manifest Climate. And now you're sort of speaking to someone who's a bit more into the weeds in terms of the data and in terms of some of the insights that we generate from the work that we do. So our mission, if you like, is to, uh, is to help bring transparency to the capital markets. Uh, we are exclusively focused on climate and we use the task force on climate related financial disclosures, the TCFD, as a framework. And it is just that to help us guide folks along the climate response journey. 
So we look at, we look beyond greenhouse gases, which we think are one piece of a broader jigsaw. And we really like to help folks out. And the folks that we think are best suited for our support are those folks who are under some regulatory compliance pressure. And those so tends to be issuers and others in the public markets. And we tend to find the best folks that we work with often have some conception of where they want to go to with climate, but are not necessarily, you know, leading the charge or leading the field. We can work with everyone and we tend to uh, sort of watchword is really we meet people where they are. And so that's that's what we like to do. We like to use the data that we have to generate decision useful information that they can act on to really move the needle. Okay, excellent. So if I'm a public company and I'm looking to basically refine and and figure out really my climate messaging and what I am actually doing, you guys can help me with that. That's exactly right. And the, the pieces that we pull out, and, and maybe this will segue to a, a broader conversation, is when we work with different industries and we, we do work cross-sectorally and we think that the, the, there are very good reasons to do that. But when we start zeroing on, on specific industries, we like to do kind of three things. We like to assess how well that industry is doing with respect to telling its story. Uh, we like to understand the nuance of that industry uh, because we tend to find, as in the mining sector, that any particular industry or sectoral response to climate tends to have a number of different faces. And then thirdly, uh, we like to connect the dots. And we see that as a critical part of our work which is really to understand, you know, for those industries and sectors like the mining sector that are critical to the transition to a decarbonized economy, um, that, that mission, that, um, that outcome does not, does not happen until and unless, uh, the, the dots have been connected across different sectors, across different industries. And we get, we can get into that as well. So then tell us, how is the mining industry doing in telling its story? It's interesting because there are a couple of different tales here. On, on the one hand, the mining sector uh, is doing pretty well. Um, historically, metals and mining has actually been one of the leaders in terms of telling its story. But that is that sort of statement at a at a general level masks some of the nuance here. From the historical data that we have, generally metals and mining have followed a, a linear trend when it when it comes to sort of climate awareness. And that's good. I mean, it, it was a um, it was an early leader, early marker. But other sectors now have started to catch up, and actually, their climate awareness. And when I say climate awareness, I'm speaking to our particular methodology uh, around understanding where where folks are on their climate journey. Uh, we're seeing other sectors start to catch up pretty quickly, and may even overtake. Another thing, which I think is, um, I'll, I'll make two more points actually on the, on the telling its story piece of it, is within the mining sector itself. There are different stages of awareness. So when you look at copper, for example, and thermal coal, both of those individuals, uh, sort of elements of the industry are actually leading other uh, metals and mining companies for climate awareness, even though they are at opposite ends of the spectrum, which is to say, of course, that, you know, copper is a key part of the decarbonization transition and uh, thermal coal is, is, is perhaps at the other end. And then the third piece, and this is really where I think the story from the mining industry can do a much better job, even though, as I just mentioned, um, you know, the, the copper and other minerals and metals are, are critical to the transition, very well, less than half of the main, major mining companies that we looked at are actually disclosing their climate related market opportunities. And now compare that to their disclosure of physical climate risk. So call it 40% of folks are disclosing opportunities, but almost 90% are disclosing physical risk. That discrepancy is, mm. is huge, and it is a real opportunity for, um, uh, excuse the pun, for mining sectors, the mining companies to get, to get out in front of what really is a huge opportunity. I mean, when you think about it, everything that we do, and I, I listened to a, a mining podcast quite recently, so I'm, I'm not going to take uh, credit for this, but, you know, it was put that... Uh, Everything we do is either farmed or mined. And, um, mm. you know, the, the, the mining sector is so critical to the transition and it's so critical for, for folks to really understand within that sector the opportunities that are out there. Gosh, I feel like I might have listened to that podcast because it rings a bell somewhere deep in yeah. my mind. So I think this is a really cool concept, this idea of, of an opportunity rather than we're always thinking of the environment and the climate and 
how we're not going to how dangerous everything is. But really, it, it's it's kind of an interesting way of reframing the conversation into in terms of the opportunity, because I'm sure there is. Right. I mean, we see people talk about the green transition, for instance, as an opportunity for jobs and all this sort of thing. So it makes a lot of sense from the company level to be thinking of it that way as well. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and I think we need to unpack a little bit when we say opportunity, because you know, it, it's not enough just to say that, that, that mining companies at large all have equal opportunity. They don't. We mentioned thermal coal earlier. I mean, there was probably more risk to that, to that particular sort of uh, uh, the folks in that, that piece of the sector than, than there is uh, opportunity potentially. And, and this kind of triggers the second element, perhaps we can touch on the, on this conversation, which is around the nuance to the, to the mining sector. So when you think about opportunities, you think about, okay, well, where, where's the market going? And, and I speak to, I mentioned we are cross-sectoral. So we speak to the finance sector a lot. And the folks within that, that sector sort of say two things. They sort of say, goodness, where are all minerals and metals actually coming from? So that's a huge opportunity uh, because, quite frankly, supply can't meet demand or projected demand, certainly. And secondly, Perhaps this is talking, you know, there's the, the sort of two different conversations here. But the second piece of it is how do we invest in those folks who are can exploit the opportunities, but who are also placing enough emphasis on ESG performance? So, again, when you if you're in a put your financial hat on for a second, I'm looking out for opportunities. And we like to reframe it in that respect, because we always say, you know, a company that only looks at risk has a pretty short shelf life. Uh, it has to generate opportunities and the opportunities within the mining sector in the decarbonization of our economy is absolutely massive. But again, going back to, well, OK, I have to decide where I put my money. Well, almost three quarters of the financial folks that we we speak to uh, are more likely to divest from companies um, and whether that's within the mining sector or externally with poor ESG track records. Now, uh, perhaps I should have mentioned at the top of the call, we are exclusively focused on climate. So we, we have a, a fairly narrow focus, but we think the same holds true. And I think the question then is, if we think that ESG broadly, climate more specifically, is playing such a big role in determining capital allocation, you know, why is that the case? And I think there are three reasons for that, which I'm happy to go into or we can dive into it. It's really interesting that you mentioned the capital allocation and the investment uh, side of things. And because I was on Google and we were looking at this on the program a couple of weeks ago, and sure enough, now they have a kind of ESG rating of sorts to your point about this, uh, how important it is with capital allocation right there on Google Finance. Now, you mentioned connecting the dots earlier. So, so connect the dots for us here as we wrap up here. How are you connecting the dots for everyone? No, thank you. So it used to be the case that folks wanted to do the right thing from a societal perspective. And, you know, in the mining sector, social license obviously was used to be, uh, well, still is uh, a critical piece of the jigsaw. That's good. It also, and it's becoming increasingly the case that it's the right thing to do to have an effective climate response from a business perspective. So when you think about electrification leading to lower maintenance or lower evaporation due to, you know, your approach to tailings ponds and putting a covered PV, for example, even our own data showing, you know, how companies are better able to withstand shock if they follow the TCFD framework. But really, the connecting dots piece comes as regulation starts to, to bite. So companies around the world, and this is within the mining sector as well as outside the mining sector, are will be and are exposed to many different jurisdictions and the regulatory regimes that comprise those jurisdictions. So, for example, in the U.S., you have the SEC looking at the mandatory disclosure of climate-related data. So, too, do you have that in Canada. So, too, do you have that in the UK. So, too, do you have that under the auspices of the new ISSB. How we connect the dots? Well, we can tell you, for example, you know, how subsection 229 of the SEC proposed rules map the sections par or paragraphs 456 of the ISSB exposure draft or map the section 414 of the UK's Companies Act. And that can really help you trim down the cost with respect to compliance, the compliance burden. So I'll just, I'll, and perhaps I'll finish here because it's just, this is always interesting money. The SEC sort of estimates, and I'll use very ballpark figures, that compliance with the new rules uh, with respect to climate disclosure will be around $600,000, of which 200000 might be internal and 400000 might be external. That number 
can be a very significant number, both within an individual organization and across an industry. And the, the way you generate efficiencies is to make sure you're not doing the same amount of work in the US, in the UK, internationally. So we can help. And what we try to do is join those dots such that you're actually gaining efficiencies as you mark, uh, work across different jurisdictions. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, exactly. Why do the same work over and over? If you guys know how to do that, if you can start to map these things across each other, hence your 15 years in international law. Well, <laughs> Peter Richardson from Manifest Climate, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And we'd like to thank Manifest Climate again for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. And you can find more about Manifest Climate at manifestclimate.com. And turning to the website, we do have an update on the missing miners at Trevally Mining's Percoa Zinc Mine in Burkina Faso. They have still not located eight underground miners who went missing on April 16th. This is after flooding that was caused by heavy rainfall, which disrupted operations, according to the company. So they have a statement, we are working in solidarity with all levels of government, as well as importing additional machinery and equipment to assist with locating our missing colleagues. The company's CEO, Rickus Grimbeek, said in a press release, so unfortunately, it's not looking too good over there. Yeah, six out of the eight missing men are from Burkina Faso, while the other two are from Tanzania in Zambia. Turning to our next story, we have a reporter, Henry Lazenby, is traveling the world and he is reporting from Cape Town, South Africa about mining in Daba. And he has a story on Mark Bristow, who is pleading with African miners to create, quote, partnerships for prosperity. Now, there is a lot going on in this speech, and we're going to take a closer look. A renewed focus on creating meaningful partnerships between miners, host communities, and governments is quintessential to unlocking economic prosperity for African stakeholders. Barrett Gold CEO Mark Bristow told the Investing in Africa Mining in Daba on May 9th. The chief executive of the world's second largest gold producer by volume calls it, quote, partnerships for prosperity, which he believes is critical for building Africa into a resource powerhouse. Brissot pointed to one of the biggest tests for partnership the world ever faced was the arrival of COVID-19. Quote, historians of the future will marvel at how governments initially bungled their response to the pandemic, both at home and abroad. Global problems need global solutions. But instead of the developed countries leading a coordinated response, we saw them give a shameful display of selfishness. Initially, at least, starving poorer countries of vaccines while they sat on stockpiles of the stuff. It's hard to disagree. It was shameful. It really resonates when you hear that. I mean, I, what part of that is not true? And it was shameful. And so he continues, if ever there was a need for partnership, this was it. And they failed the test. Yeah. And then he went on to talk about the Russia-Ukraine war, quote, the ongoing war is inflicting serious damage on the major economies already dealing with double-digit inflation and imminent recession. We do not know just how badly these events will impact developing countries, but without a doubt, there will be dire implications for their economies and direct foreign investment, exacerbating already weak economies, and this also goes for Africa and particularly its mining sector, which has already been declining in recent years. I'm surprised to hear that the mining sector in Africa has been declining. That's also shameful. Back to the report, the executive lamented resource nationalism and overzealous government policies seeking to extract the maximum value from fledgling mines were stopping investments in its tracks. Quote, increasing the tax burden on a mine will drive the cost of mining to a point where they are not economically viable. So again, today, I would like to renew my plea for governments and miners to work together in a long-term partnership that will benefit them and their stakeholders equally. Mining paves the way for even greater and more rewarding ventures. And this is interesting coming from a guy who makes some of the biggest compromises really with governments and really does seem to want to give the locals 
a stake in these, a real stake, not just, you know, a symbolic tiny stake, but a real stake in these mines. But he is pushing back a little bit and saying, you know what, the tax burden, you guys are asking a little too much, some governments. So interesting. And here he talks about what he means by partnership. Quote, and by a partnership, I mean sharing the value of our minds and creating faith and trade fairly with our hosts. It means being a good citizen and a good neighbor. It's funny how common sense and just that's how hard that can be sometimes. According to Bristow, mining is one of the three primary building blocks vital for growing any economy, the other being agriculture and tourism. And remember, Mark Bristow, as far as I understand, is from South Africa, so he is not, he is not a tourist here. Quote, most African countries, and certainly all of those represented here today, boast potential for all three, that is agriculture, tourism, and mining. However, unlike the other two, mining is a capital-intensive industry which requires large upfront capital investment and demands a long-term commitment from all partners. The discovery process is long and uncertain and needs ongoing investment. Developing mines and remote infrastructure for regions can be difficult and expensive. That's why mines only provide positive returns after a production period. The growing tendency amongst both governments and investors to extract almost immediate benefits is in fact destructive of our mining industry's ability to deliver our full potential. So he's also targeting investors a little bit, which is also interesting. Successful large-scale mines like Barracks need constant reinvestment to remain profitable, which is often at odds with government's urge to take all they can get as soon as possible. And then he gave the example in Mali, quote, and, and we witnessed it in Mali as successive governments over the past two decades raised the economic sharing from 55-45 in favor of the government to 70-30, also in favor of the government. Partnerships need mutual trust, transparency, and long-term commitments to work. Corruption destroys a country's ability to build trust and attract long-term investment. I must say that in some jurisdictions, new governments are now looking at rowing back to a fairer dispensation. Mark Brissot trying to build bridges, as he often does, at least from over here at the Northern Miner Podcast. That's how we see Bristow. Uh, continuing on, another barracks story, which I'm just going to touch on. They are very comfortable with the Rico Deke project, despite Pakistan's political uncertainty. It's by Naimul Karim. And it says here, a change in the government of Pakistan won't impact the development of Barrick Gold's $7 billion Rico Deek copper gold project in Balochistan province, said CEO Mark Bristow on a conference call. In early April, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan, with whose government Barrick reached a deal in March to restart the Rico Deek project after a decade, was ousted from office through a parliamentary vote. Khan was replaced by Shabazz Sharif, leader of the former opposition party. So this speaks to his point, although this is in Pakistan here. Of course, there are going to be challenges and bumps along the road. Despite starting in sort of a conflict situation, the state of Pakistan, and we have been through many governments in this process, has always upheld our agreements, and I think that bodes well for long-term partnership. Yes, this emphasis on long-term partnerships. And finally, just a little bit on Rico Deek. Barrick believes it's one of the world's largest undeveloped open-pit copper gold porphyry deposits and negotiated with the Pakistan government for two years to restart the project. Some analysts believe that Pakistan's lack of experience in mining and its political instability make this a risky deal. Bristow says, however, he is, quote, very comfortable with the project and that it is, quote, a perfect opportunity for the mining industry to demonstrate what it can bring to an economy. Noting that the region, Balochistan, has been, quote, neglected, end quote, and struggles to get access to potable water. Okay, so you can read more about that on northernminer.com. Don't want to go too long in our news stories here. There's a lot to look at. We have another report from Henry Lazenby on metals. And Fitch Solution Country Risk and Industry Research is saying that they expect a rebound in metal prices in the second half of 2022. Right, and there's this whole other issue that we haven't even touched on here, which is massive, which is this issue of China. Enduring COVID-19 linked lockdowns in the world's largest metal consumer, China, are negatively impacting demand, resulting in lower metal prices. Nevertheless, market analysts at Fitch maintain their 2022 metal price forecast as prices generally remain above levels seen before the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I mean, this is the thing with the commodities trade. If you have shortages, it's hard to say that that's not bullish. 
So I think strategically, and this is not financial advice, but me just thinking out loud, strategically, it makes sense that you continue to employ the buy low, sell high mentality. So you don't just run out and buy commodities, but maybe you do buy the dips in commodities. I think out loud, I actually don't own any of these things. Again, I'm kind of pure crypto and I own a, the closest I get is a crypto which tracks gold. So I do kind of own gold indirectly, but no uranium, no stocks, no commodities at this point. Continuing on, quote, while we expect significant price volatility going forward, especially as the conflict in Ukraine evolves, we expect gold prices to remain elevated in the coming years compared to pre-COVID levels. So they like gold too. And there you go. And continuing on, Valet scores multi-year nickel supply deal with Tesla. So that continues to happen. Another very interesting theme of how these auto manufacturers are almost wanting to buy the mine or buy the supply. They're making deals directly with miners. Super interesting development. You can read more about that on northernminer.com. Glencore to invest $200 million in battery recycling firm, Lycycle. It's by Naimul Kareem. And they are based out of Toronto, Lycycle Holdings. And they have made a deal with Glencore to supply the company with all types of manufacturing scrap and end-of-life lithium-ion batteries. And that can't hurt Glencore either, having a recycler in the mix. Quote, this is a key step in establishing a strong long-term foundation for the vertical integration of the battery material supply chain, said Kunal Sinha, who is on Lifecycle's board. Together, we will be expanding the spectrum of battery material supply solutions to a broader global customer base, particularly in Europe and North America. What do they call it? Friendshoring? That's what Janet Yellen called it. And finally, I don't want to miss this story, and it dovetails into our uranium feature content here. Uranium still drawing investors as SEC rejects Sprott US fund. And this is by Bloomberg News via mining.com. Commodities investors see uranium as a rising star, a material needed for nuclear power in a world moving away from fossil fuels. For the US Securities and Exchange Commission, investing in it is another story. I have a theory on this whole Sprott Uranium Trust. I think it kind of flew a little bit under the radar of the regulators in Canada. Maybe they're not thinking through the whole implications of letting someone kind of, and such a weird kind of, almost want to say arcane market like uranium and start buying it up and storing it. I mean, some people say, I mean, Rohan Reddy said it's good for price discovery. But frankly, if I was in the government, I'm not sure I would allow that. I'd sort of say, you know what, this is too central for you to start mucking around here. We like it cheap. We want to keep it cheap. So let's take a look and see what the SEC says. The SEC this week rejected an application by the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Again, I'm not surprised to become the first such fund to trade on U.S. exchanges. The company said, citing a failure to meet listing standards, a Sprott statement pointed to the challenges, including the structure of the trust and the, quote, nature of the physical uranium market. Think about it. How would redemption and delivery of radioactive material work? Well, that's another thing. CEO of Sprott Asset Management, John Champaglia, said, quote, we've been very clear to our investors from the start that this would be treated as a novel listing by the SEC, thereby making it difficult to predict an outcome. We acknowledge the uranium market has a number of structural differences compared to other commodity markets. Like, I wonder if the U.S., and I'm totally speculating, I wonder if they're kind of mad that Canada approved that. And maybe they just go, well, Canada's small enough where maybe we don't need to work. But, it, I mean, people said, I mean, Rohan Reddy said, that's when uranium started to move, was when Sprott started his trust. So they're kind of mucking around, it, like, frankly, like, and... You know, if you put all the free market stuff aside, and maybe we shouldn't put the free market stuff aside, maybe this is all healthy, and maybe we're getting real price discovery. That's what the free market would say. If I'm in government and I'm just kind of looking at the price of uranium go through the roof as we're having all these other energy issues, and then Sprott is seen as the, the catalyst, I'm kind of not impressed. And I'm not happy about that, okay? Like, that's what I see. What else do we have here? Bloomberg Intelligence said, quote, if they can somehow figure out a way to do this, it should be a smash hit product. Because this country and the rest of the world is really opening up to the reality that nuclear energy will have to be part of the climate change solution. The sentiment has totally changed. You know what this reminds me of? This is like wheat. 
and being able to speculate on wheat futures and driving the price up. And to me, this is another thing. And free market people will tell you, oh, and hey, I'm free market at the core, but I'm a pragmatist too, not an ideologue. And the problem is, is if you don't have enough wheat and you're just raising the price, what is that doing? Are you going to take zero responsibility for investing in wheat futures or in wheat commodities to, for your speculative gain as raising the price? There's only so much food. It's not like people, oh, now I'm going to make more wheat. It sounds like we don't have enough. And I know that's controversial for some people. And I always thought this on my own. Then recently I heard some other guy go, you know, I like wheat, but I hate to say it. Someone who is deep in the financial markets, I can't remember which guest that was. I would like to invest in wheat, but I don't because I know that will help raise the price. This reminds me of that, this whole Sprott Uranium Trust. It's like, oh, and it's going to be great for investors. But I mean, I I think we got to open our mind to what, might this might be doing. And again, I'm not saying I have the answers here. This might be positive. So with that, those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And before we begin, just as we always do, let's just check in with the U.S. 10-year bond, since we never mentioned it in the intro because there is so much going on. It is at 3.046%. It was up yesterday, and I think that's what caused the crash yesterday in stocks. It was up at 3.18%. It continued to rocket up. So Maybe that was a bit of a high for the time being. Let's see. But now it's coming back to 3.046%. And that is 0.12% higher than last week. Turning to metals, gold is trading at $1,861 per ounce. That is a mere 33 cents higher than last week. Staying steady there. Silver is at $22.03 per ounce. That is down 61 cents from last week. Platinum is at $975.71 per ounce. That is $23 higher than last week. And palladium is at $2,141.60 per ounce. That is $121 lower than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is at $4.28 per pound. That is that is 17 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is 10 cents lower at $1.28 per pound. Lead is two cents lower to dollar one per pound, and nickel is at thirteen dollars and fifty-eight cents per pound. That is a dollar thirteen lower than last week. Tin is ten cents lower at eighteen dollars and forty-one cents per pound, and cobalt is two cents lower at thirty-six dollars and ninety-five cents per pound, and zinc is seventeen cents lower at a dollar seventy-four per pound. I think across the board. For the most part, what this looks like, if I had to speculate, it looks like metals are coming down from their lows as they have been for the last few weeks, and it feels like they're about to bounce off their support and go higher. If I, That's kind of what this feels like to me. Uh, copper at 428, like, do we really think it's going to keep going down? If there's an economic crisis, okay, sure which is completely possible. I think we're all kind of half waiting for that to happen, waiting for the other shoe to drop with all these turmoil, all these, all, everything going on in the system. But nevertheless, metal prices remain elevated. Precious metals look like they're returning to support. And really, it's the moment of truth, really, for gold and silver to a certain degree. If they break down from here uh, below, say, $1,800 on gold, and maybe below $20, I'm guessing, on silver, I think you can start to think, oh, maybe this will continue lower. But until then, this looks like it's all coming down to support. You look at the charts, nickel, it looked like the same thing after having a really big run. It's all come down slowly, and it looks like it's about to resume higher. That's what this looks like. But all speculation over here, and those are your metal prices. 
And coming up, we have Cameco's 2022 Q1 conference call. And this features CEO Tim Gitzel, who shares his concern for a supply shock in uranium. He's talking about how countries around the world are starting to reconsider and turn to nuclear, even in California, and that Germany is discussing it, even Germany, he says. And he also talks about the Russia-Ukraine war, the problem with supply coming out of Russia. And really, this looks like a perfect storm for uranium that Cameco is perfectly poised to benefit from. It's Again, it seems like years of positioning have set themselves up for this moment. So this is Cameco CEO Tim Gitzel in last week's 2022 Q1 conference call. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. joining us on our call today. I want to start today by expressing our shock and sadness with the events taking place in Ukraine and our solidarity and support for the Ukrainian people. I had the opportunity to have a video conference yesterday with our Ukrainian customers in Kyiv, at which time I thanked them for the courage and resilience they've shown over the past several months. We can only hope and pray for a speedy resolution of this unnecessary conflict. Last quarter, we indicated that we believed we were in the early innings of a security of supply-driven market transition, demonstrated by our contracting success, a growing pipeline of discussions with our customers, and rising uranium prices, a transition supported by the fundamentals. Fundamentals characterized by durable, full-cycle demand against the backdrop of an uncertain supply picture. Stemming from these fundamentals and our contracting success, we had the confidence to proceed with the next phase of our supply discipline, which is now well underway. I'll provide some details on that a bit later. What we didn't know when we made our decision to proceed with the next phase of our supply discipline was the pace of change that would occur in our industry because of geopolitical events that are further amplifying security of supply concerns. It's still early days, but we are seeing what we believe is an unprecedented geopolitical realignment occurring in the nuclear fuel cycle. Thanks to the strategic and deliberate decisions Cameco has made over the past decade, the company is extraordinarily well positioned in this rapidly changing market. But as always, we will take a balanced and disciplined approach. Let's look at the changes in our market in more detail, starting with demand. We've talked before about how the benefits of nuclear energy have come clearly into focus with a durability that we believe has not previously been seen. A durability that is being driven by the accountability for achieving the net zero carbon targets being set by countries and companies around the world. You know, I saw a figure just the other day that 90%, 90% of the world's economy is now covered by net zero targets. Net zero targets that are turning attention to a triple challenge. First is to lift one third of the global population out of energy poverty by expanding the availability of clean and reliable baseload electricity. Second is to replace 85% of the current global electricity grids that run on carbon-emitting thermal power with a clean, reliable alternative. And finally, the challenge is to grow global power grids by switching industries to electricity, such as private and commercial transportation, home and industrial heating, which today are largely powered with carbon-emitting thermal energy. If that wasn't challenging enough, we can add to the list solving the energy crisis experienced in some parts of the world while pivoting away from reliance on Russian energy without jeopardizing those net zero commitments. Therefore, not surprising that concerns about energy security are amplified and at the top of the list for many countries, creating further pressure for governments to re-examine their energy policy decisions. Policymakers around the world are recognizing that in their drive for a clean energy profile they have forgotten to balance their other objectives like providing an affordable levelized cost profile, 
providing a reliable and secure baseload profile. Too much focus on intermittent weather-dependent renewable energy has left some jurisdictions struggling with power shortages and spiking energy prices or a dependence on Russian energy supplies. The good news for us is that in their quest to restore balance or pivot away from Russia, many are turning now to nuclear. Nuclear power fits nicely at the center of that policy triangle, providing safe, affordable, carbon-free baseload electricity that has a clean emissions profile while also being reliable and secure. Which is why in the U.S. the Biden administration just announced a $6 billion effort to secure nuclear power plants at risk of closing. And something I never thought possible just a few years ago, the governor of California announced that he will seek funding under this plan to prevent the closure of Diablo Canyon. It's why in the British Energy Security Strategy released in early April, the United Kingdom outlined its plans to reduce dependence on Russian oil and natural gas by building eight new nuclear plants. One new plant a year, as we heard the British Prime Minister say this week. It's why recently re-elected President Emmanuel Macron of France committed to 14 new reactors and life extensions for its existing fleet. It's also why the European Commission accepted nuclear energy in its green energy taxonomy. It's why recently elected President Yoon of South Korea plans to reverse the nuclear phase-out policy of the previous government and stated that nuclear energy should be the baseload electricity source in South Korea for the next 60 years, and that South Korea should export its technology outside of its borders. Why we've seen Belgium announce plans for 10-year life extensions for its two newest reactors. And that Germany, yes, even Germany, in fact, could reconsider its own nuclear phase-out plans. The growth in demand is not just long-term in the form of new builds, it is full-cycle demand. There's near-term growth as early reactor retirements are prevented, and there's medium-term demand in the form of reactor life extensions. There's also momentum building for non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power around the world, such as development of small modular reactors and advanced reactors with numerous companies and countries pursuing projects. So things are moving very quickly in our industry, and we're seeing countries and companies turn to nuclear with an appetite that I'm not sure I've ever seen in my four decades in this business. Therefore, it's easy to conclude that the demand outlook is durable and very bright. But supply is quite a different picture. For some time now, we've said that we believe the uranium market was as vulnerable to a supply shock as it has ever been due to persistently low prices, supply curtailments of existing productive capacity, development risk due to lack of investment in new productive capacity, the end of reserve life for some mines, the deepening geopolitical and origin risk driven by the increasing concentration of supply, and the trend toward regionalization to ensure the availability of critical minerals. And unlike in the past, we don't have the same stock of secondary supplies to fill the gap. After years of drawing on these one-time sources, the secondary supply capacity is now declining significantly into the future and productive capacity is not poised to respond. These fundamental facts have been amplified by both unplanned supply disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and by global supply chain and inflationary challenges that are not only interrupting the flow of goods and services in the uranium market, but also increasing costs. I was at a meeting of business leaders just the other day where it was said that if you have a feasibility study that is more than a few months old, you might as well toss it and start over. Supply challenges have been further intensified by the thinning of the spot market due to the interest in physical uranium by investors. Particular, I'm referring to the Sprott Uranium Trust that are purchasing significant volumes of uranium and sequestering it by the increasing ESG scrutiny of utilities to ensure their supply chains meet the standards for all three factors. By the unrest in Kazakhstan in early January that raised concerns about the security of about 45% of global uranium supply 
And then in February, the tragic Russian invasion of Ukraine, which sent a shiver down the spines of nuclear fuel buyers around the world. Currently, the global nuclear industry relies on Russia for approximately 14% of its supply of uranium concentrates, 27% of conversion supply, and 39% of enrichment capacity. Many jurisdictions have imposed strict economic sanctions on Russia, including Canada, the United States, the European Union, and the United Kingdom, among others. In addition to economic sanctions, many countries, including the U.S., have sanctioned or are considering sanctioning imports of Russian energy, including oil, natural gas, and coal. With the continued conflict, there is also growing uncertainty about the ability to continue to rely on nuclear fuel supplies coming out of Russia, whether as a result of sanctions or because of a conflict with company values. In fact, we've seen some utilities voluntarily pivot away from Russian fuel supplies they recognize the incongruency with their values and ESG principles. From our perspective, it's not a matter of if Western markets will turn their backs on Russian nuclear fuel supply, but rather when and how quickly. Of course, there's also the risk that Russia preempts any actions by Western markets, imposing its own voluntary export restraints in retaliation for economic and other sanctions as we've seen them do with gas in parts of Europe. And then there's the uncertainty about the ability to ship uranium through Russian ports or the Black Sea, which could affect not only Russian supply, but also deliveries from Central Asia. While it is still technically possible to ship through Russia, due to insurance and other reasons, we've decided to delay a near-term delivery from Inkai in Kazakhstan while we work with our partner to establish an alternate shipping route. This could take some time, but we have the ability to mitigate the risk with inventory, long-term purchase commitments, and loans if necessary. It's still early days, and utilities are working their way through their fuel supply chains to determine where their vulnerabilities are. But already, we're seeing some utilities begin to pivot toward procurement strategies that more carefully weigh the origin risk. Looking at where the market is today and the growing risk to supply and origin of supply, it's easy to conclude that the current nuclear fuel market is more positive than we have seen in a very long time. So let me turn to Cameco and our response to the changes in the market. As a commercial supplier, our decisions have uniquely positioned the company to capitalize on the increasingly undeniable conclusion that nuclear power must be an essential part of the clean energy transition, and even more so in a world where origins matter. With demonstrated Tier 1 assets, strategic Tier 2 assets, and vertical integration, we've taken a balanced and disciplined approach to our strategy of full-cycle value capture. On the contracting front, we've been balanced and disciplined in layering in volumes where it makes sense for us and building a diversified customer base. But with what we believe are the early innings of a market transition and more demand ahead of us, we will continue to be patient. We're not even close to being sold out, and so we will maintain considerable leverage to the further market improvements that we expect to see. We're also taking a balanced and disciplined approach to our supply decisions. The next phase of our supply discipline, which involves not only MacArthur River Key Lake, but starting in 2024 Cigar Lake, is balanced with our contract portfolio and where we think the market transition is currently at. Even though we've seen considerable pricing pressure resulting from the geopolitical uncertainty, we will not change our production plans. We will not front-run demand with supply. We won't ramp up production to meet spot demand. We will ramp up once we've built the homes for those pounds in our long-term contract portfolio and we see further improvements in the uranium market. With all the uncertainty, we're not rushing this process. And I think we've shown we can be trusted when we say we will remain disciplined. Finally, while we're talking about balance, we have shown balanced financial discipline. We will retain our conservative financial management to support our continued balanced and disciplined contracting and supply decisions. 
Let me take a minute to discuss where we're at with the next phase of our supply discipline. As we announced last quarter, we're laying claim to our Tier 1 incumbency advantage as we further position Cameco to capture the value we expect to come from the growing demand for safe, clean, reliable, and affordable nuclear energy. We started the process to transition the MacArthur River Mine and the Key Lake Mill from care and maintenance to operational readiness. We've begun the recruiting and training process. Current workforce at these sites is now approximately 600, including employees and long-term contractors, with a view to achieving about 850 prior to the start of production later this year. Our maintenance readiness checks are underway and we are completing the critical automation, digitization and other projects needed to begin production. With the work we're undertaking this year, we could produce up to 5 million pounds on a 100% basis. Our current plan is to achieve production of 15 million pounds per year on a 100% basis by 2024. That is 40% below the annual license capacity. Once MacArthur River Key Lake operation reaches its planned production starting in 2024, it's our intention to pull back on production at Cigar Lake. Our plan is to take production at Cigar Lake from 18 million pounds per year down to 13.5 million pounds per year on a 100% basis or 25% below its license capacity. This year, we continue to expect to produce 15 million pounds at Cigar Lake on a 100% basis, 3 million pounds less than its license capacity. Our production outlook this year reflects the expected impact of delays in development work at Cigar Lake in 2021, and the ongoing pandemic and supply chain challenges that are impacting the availability of materials, reagents and labor at all of our operations, including labor negotiations that could impact production. However, we're working to minimize any disruption to our operations. What's the result of all this? We expect that our operational decisions at MacArthur River Key Lake will have a significant and positive impact on our financial performance. As you know, the financial aspect of our strategy is to ensure we have a solid balance sheet and the ability to self-manage risk. At the end of the first quarter, we again were in a net negative debt position with $1.5 billion in cash, about $1 billion in long-term debt, and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility. And this doesn't include the $778 million owed to us by the CRA. Once production at the MacArthur River Key Lake operation resumes, we expect to begin to see a significant improvement in our earnings and cash flow. We will no longer expense operational readiness costs to cost of sales, and we'll be able to source more of our committed sales from lower cost produced pounds. As we saw this quarter, the higher prices in the currently improving market are beginning to flow through our existing contract portfolio. And with an inventory of unencumbered pounds in the ground, rising prices will also create the opportunity to layer in new long-term commitments. Commitments with appropriate pricing mechanisms that will underpin the long-term operation of our productive capacity. We've also started to bring forward some of our long-term purchases. Remember that when uranium prices started with a two or a three, We secured almost 13 million pounds of material under long-term fixed-price purchase arrangements. We have not taken delivery or paid for the majority of these pounds, so they're not on our balance sheet, but they are stored at our facility. The deliveries under these arrangements are heavily weighted to the years 2025 through 2028. However, we have the ability to bring these pounds forward and earn a good margin on them today. We put these arrangements in place as a means of risk mitigation. With the planned production changes at MacArthur River Key Lake and Cigar Lake, our need for these pounds to mitigate risk has been reduced. We will continue to balance this activity with our spot market purchases. As such, we expect to continue to have the financial capacity to execute on our strategy and self-manage risk, including from the global macroeconomic and geopolitical uncertainty we're seeing today. Having been in this business for a long time, we have been through every market transition in our industry. 
We understand that while having great assets is a necessary condition for creating long-term value, it's not sufficient. We also know that the spot market in our industry is not the fundamental market in our business. It is not where utilities turn to satisfy their long-term run rate requirements. It's typically where they go for one-time discretionary volumes. Our experience has taught us that a responsible producer creates real value by building a long-term contract portfolio. Portfolio that supports the operation of productive assets and generates significant cash flow through the entire commodity cycle by having leverage to greater returns as prices increase and that provides downside protection for the periods of lower prices. In our business, there is no substitute for a full-blown utility-driven long-term contracting cycle. Contracting cycle motivated by security of supply concerns drives value capture in the uranium fuel market, just like it did in the conversion market two years ago. And as it did for us during the worst down cycle in the uranium business when our average realized price outperformed the market and protected our balance sheet when others failed financially and had to be recapitalized and restructured, destroying value for their owners. Finally, after more than 10 years in a trough and through the deliberate and disciplined execution of our strategy, we're seeing increased interest in contracting and not just in uranium, but across the fuel cycle. With geopolitics complicating and potentially bottlenecking nuclear fuel supplies, we're seeing not just utilities, but some of the intermediaries and service providers beginning to shift their attention to securing material for their uncovered requirements and to de-risk some of their origin dependencies. The requests for proposals we are seeing are directed at those producers who have proven and reliable productive capacity in the right jurisdictions and who have a track record of honoring commitments. As an independent commercial supplier, we can provide our customers with access to proven and reliable productive capacity, both uranium and fuel services, which is exactly what they want. And with substantial Canadian productive capacity, our supply meets both energy security and increasingly stringent ESG requirements that are table stakes today. And it can provide diversity from state-owned enterprises and help to de-risk utilities' future supply from geopolitical risk and trade policy exposure. So what does all this mean for Cameco? Well, it means we are optimistic. We're optimistic about the growth in demand for nuclear power, both traditional and non-traditional. We're optimistic about the growth in demand for uranium and fuel services. And we're optimistic about the incumbency opportunity for Cameco in capturing long-term value across the fuel cycle, including some of the vertical integration investments we've made. Therefore, we will continue to execute on the next phase of our supply discipline strategy. And more importantly, we will continue to do what we said we would do. We have operating and idle Tier 1 assets that are licensed, permitted, long-lived and are proven operations that have expansion capacity. We have fully permitted and proven Tier 2 assets that don't make sense at today's prices, but when you think about them in the context of a looming supply and origin gap, there's a potential pathway for them to add value for us in the future. But we will continue to be very disciplined in our evaluation on that front. Thanks to our disciplined contracting strategy, we have a contract portfolio that has protected us well during the worst down cycle in our business. As the nuclear fuel market improves further, our focus is shifting to securing homes for our in-ground inventory and for our fuel services capacity that has not yet been committed. We are not going to chase the market down to win business and we won't produce to dump uncommitted supply into a thinly traded spot market as we have seen some of our competitors do. The primary driver for our contracting activity is always value. Therefore, as the market improves, we expect to continue to layer in volumes, capturing greater upside using market-related pricing mechanisms. That said, we recognize there is cyclicality to our business that is inevitable. So as a responsible producer, we will also look to lock in value at higher prices to carry those higher prices 
through the next cycle. Just like we locked in significant value for our fuel services business in the recent price transition and conversion. And just a reminder, we're more than just mining. We are vertically integrated across the nuclear fuel cycle with refining, conversion, and fuel fabrication. As utilities look to secure access to nuclear fuel supplies in jurisdictions that are stable, reliable, and politically dependable, we will also look to continue to build our fuel services contract book. And we're looking to expand our reach through our fuel manufacturing capabilities and investment in global laser enrichment. We're exploring fabrication of new fuels, including high assay, low enriched uranium, or HALIU. In a world where access to Russian enrichment is restricted, this investment becomes increasingly valuable to us. In time, it not only has potential as a U.S. source of enrichment capacity, but also to be a significant U.S. source of conversion and to produce HALIU. We're also participating in the development of small modular reactors and have entered a number of non-binding arrangements to advance their commercialization and deployment in Canada and around the world. And we have an interest in the nuclear sustainability service, the back end of the fuel cycle, including aiding in the responsible cleanup of enrichment facilities no longer in operation. These opportunities align with our commitment to manage our business responsibly and sustainably and to increase our contribution to global climate change solutions. Our decisions at Cameco are deliberate. We are a responsible, commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets, including a tier one production portfolio that is among the best in the world. We're committed to operating sustainably by protecting, engaging, and supporting the development of our people and their communities, and to protecting the environment, something we've been doing for over 30 years. Our strategy, which includes Contracting discipline, supply discipline, and financial discipline will allow us to achieve our vision. A vision of energizing a clean air world and thereby delivering long-term value in a market where demand for safe, secure, reliable, and affordable clean nuclear energy is growing. And there you have it, another episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Tim Gitzel and the latest of what's going on in the uranium market. You can see that Tim Gitzel has many security supply concerns, as he says. And again, this unprecedented geopolitical realignment occurring in the nuclear fuel cycle. Well, the news isn't getting any less interesting, is it? It sounds like these issues are only beginning and are not easily solved. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you for joining us once again. If you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.